Happy holidays! Chow and I are actually on vacation for the holidays, but we figured it would be fun to play back a recent talk that Chow gave at Open Source Automation Days in Munich. And the topic for the talk that I'm going to play for you guys right now is the code is open, but who's looking at it? It was definitely a very engaging talk, and I'm going to play it back for you right now. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Um, this talk might be a bit divisive, so if anybody has really strong opinions about open source, please hold the torches and the pitchforks until the end. I have a plane to catch, so I don't really have the time to be beaten up. Um, could you please switch it to the projector? Thank you. Okay, so open source. It's a great software development model, a great business model, a great work process, sharing model. It lets you have great collaboration and do amazing teamwork. We all know that. But something that keeps being repeated is that it's very, very secure. Because the code is open, anybody can check it, anybody can look at it and find bugs quickly. So it's more secure. But in fact, the reality of things is a bit different than that. And that's what I'll be addressing today. For example, who here runs Kubernetes? Have you guys ever looked at the security policy of Kubernetes? Do you know how to report a bug? How long it usually takes them to fix a bug? What's the process to submit it? Do they disclose the information? Me neither, so. <laughs> but they have the information available. They actually do have the information available because they're a very large project. They have lots of people working in the project and all of that, but that's just a very, very tiny fraction of the open source world. For example, curl. Everybody knows curl. This comes with every single distribution of Linux. It comes in embedded systems. It comes in basically anything running curl, uh, running Linux can run curl, even Windows, I believe. So this is created and managed by Mr. Daniel Stenberg. It has been around since the late 90s. And last year, and again, what I'm going to say is not a criticism of this project or any of the projects that I'm going to be talking about. These are just examples. I could have picked three other open source projects basically at random, and the results would be more or less the same. This is just because they have a pretty good reporting process at curl. They are very transparent about the issues that they face and how they fix it and how they address them. So last year, they had the CV. And the specific details of the vulnerability are not the important factor here, but it was something about disclosing information through some environment variables that weren't clearly cleared before use. So the really critical thing about the CV is that it had been submitted to the code base 20 years ago. So a very high-profile open source project had the bug in plain sight for 20 years. And it's not the only one. Um, actually, Daniel Stenberg has a pretty good blog where he, and he made a post specifically about some bugs that they have been receiving that were affecting very old code. So this isn't even the oldest code, that they, uh, the oldest bug that they found in the code so far. They've had some that are even older than that. The really interesting thing here is that a few weeks, like a couple of weeks after that vulnerability was reported, a couple more were identified around the same part of the code. So what this means is that somebody shown a, pulled a light on top of that part of the code and other people went looking and as soon as other people started to actually look at it, they actually started finding issues. And the point that Daniel makes, which I totally agree, 
is that the only way that they know there are security issues or not is if people re actually report them. So if they don't get any reports at all, they can't even be sure if anybody is actually looking at the code from a security standpoint. So just because the code is out there in the open and you can easily browse the code, there are a few other components that need to exist for you to be able to do some security audit around this. And again, this is a really high-profile project. This, lots of different pieces of software depend on this. This is included in, I believe Docker uses this under the hood. Uh, web browsers, all of that, they rely, if not in curl directly, then in libcurl pulled in through the code. Next example. I actually mentioned this one yesterday on the, on the live patching talk, but this is such a good example that I cannot avoid it. Again, lock for shell. We all got hit by this last December. Really fun Christmas present that we received. Cloudflare, Cloudflare did an actually very exhaustive analysis on this. This was being exploited in the wild eight days before public disclosure. The really interesting part about that, uh, I believe the, the original code with the issue had been submitted like two years before, so it had been two years that it was there. We know for a fact, because we know it was being exploited before public disclosure, that somebody had found it previously and had not reported it. Okay. Again, these eight days prior are just the... the the logs that Cloudflare analyzed where they managed to find it. If somebody had information about this vulnerability and had used it in a targeted attack somewhere, it wouldn't have gone through Cloudflare servers, so they wouldn't have the logs to analyze it and show it. Okay? But for a fact, we know that prior to public disclosure, it was being exploited. A very interesting <laughs> footnote as well. And in this specific talk, this is just a footnote. It took hackers nine minutes to get exploit code running after the disclosure. <laughs> I find this number really amazing. <laughs> and from my background as a sysadmin, I never patched the system within nine minutes of a, of a vulnerability being <laughs> disclosed. So, yeah. Python star file package. Um, Python has lots of modules, has lots of packages. I don't know the exact name that they call them. They're modules, if they're packages, modules, plugins, whatever. One of those is called tar file. It's used to create and then compress, obviously, tar files. In 2007, okay, 15 years ago, somebody found an issue that if you created a specific uh, tar file in a specific way, including some relative pass, and you ran it through this and asked it to decompress it, it would happily overwrite whatever it was in that pass. Okay? I guess that's easily explainable why that is dangerous. So you send an, a malicious file to a server, it's running this code, it then compresses, it hurts the files on the server. The fix in 2007, was the addition of a footnote in the documentation that says you should never use this to open untrusted files. Everybody reads the documentation, right? Especially developers. This was rediscovered two weeks ago. It made the news. It went to TechCrunch, it was on ZDNet, it was on the technology websites. So this vulnerability was rediscovered 15 years after the fact. Again, everybody reads the documentation, right? Except for the people running these 350,000 repositories in GitHub that were using the code directly and exposed to the bug. To add the insult to injury, um, GitHub's Copilot, the AI tool that helps you create code, really fancy tool, really good. You type a comment, okay, I went to uncompress a file. If you're in Python, it will suggest the code to do that. You just autocomplete and the code works. Really amazing stuff but it's trained on the data set of the repositories that they have at GitHub. 
So the suggestion that GitHub gives you when you ask him to uncompress a tar file is give you the bad code because it's in the majority of the repositories. I think that suggestion is still working today. It was last week when I checked. The critical thing here is that it was reported in 2007 and then immediately forgotten about by everybody. Or so we think. We cannot know and we'll never know who, had looking, who was looking at this in the past 15 years. They don't report it. This XKCD comic, this really kicks me up. <laughs> this is true of so many projects that it's not even funny anymore. <laughs> and if you think about it through the dependencies that we have in software creation, all the projects are like this. You will always pull some dependency that's maintained by a single person somewhere doing volunteer work, not getting paid. The only thing that person gets is complaints when something breaks on their code and somebody starts demanding that they need a fix right now. This type of projects, the ones that are maintained by one person or two persons, are said to have a bus factor of less or two, less or equal to two. The bus factor is the amount of people that can get hit by a bus and die, and the project is still viable. Over 99% of the projects hosted on GitHub fall in this category. GitHub has currently, at the time they last updated their statistics, 86 million projects, 59 million developer accounts. Over 99% of the projects fall in this category. This doesn't refrain from all of those projects being included as dependencies on other pieces of software. And they go all the way up the food chain to the web browsers, to Apache, to Nginx, to all the stuff that we rely on, to Kubernetes, to Docker. All of the, those dependencies go all the way through the food chain. So what's really funny when you're a single person developer is that you are the one creating the code, you are the one reviewing the code you just created, and you are the one approving the code into the repository. That doesn't work out very well. We tend not to see the mistakes we create. We look at the code and we see what we actually wanted to be there rather than the mistakes that we let in. That last note there is that whenever you add a new tool to your system, whenever you add a new dependency to your code, you don't just get the functionality that you are looking for. You also get all the bugs that come attached with it. This is important. For example, when you deploy a Linux system, how many packages are deployed? Hundreds? Thousands? Some of them fall under this category. For sure, it's plain math. They have to. It's interesting. The, the Linux distributions, for example, they will give you this image that they are looking at security and uh, being really careful about what they include and all of that. But at the end of the day, they just repackage the upstream projects. They find the maintainer, somebody who's willing to do the packaging, and then they just repackage whatever comes from upstream and wait for the fixes from upstream. If it's something really egregious, something really, really bad, they will develop some fixing in-house, submit it upstream and package with the fix. But for low-impact low vulnerabilities, just wait until upstream fixes it and then include it in the next release. So what happens when a vulnerability... How is the vulnerability created is better? You have the initial code submitted to the code repository. Someone looks at the code, finds an issue, reports it, obviously. A fix is created, it's added to the repository, there is a public disclosure. All the systems get patched immediately, and then the hackers try to download the code and exploit the systems, right? Not exactly. The code is committed to the repository, a threat actor will check for vulnerabilities, do not report it, obviously. And this is the interesting aspect, and we'll get right back to it. And there it just follows the previous schematic. 
right now the incentive for not reporting vulnerabilities is highly skewed toward the threat actors. The payout is much larger for them, the benefits that they can reap from it are much larger, and they are highly motivated to find this. They are more motivated to find the vulnerabilities than the people on our side of the fence. A really good talk by Greg Crow Hartman. CVs are dead, long live the CV. This is on YouTube, you can find it easily. The link is there if you want to direct link to it. He's talking about uh, CVs and all of that. And during that talk, he makes this... To me, it was new. I didn't know it worked like that. But apparently, every single week, the Linux kernel security team will fix security issues that are present in the code. They never get a CVE assigned. They will just be included in the next version. And that's actually the main reason why you should always keep your kernel up to date. But you don't know what fixes are. They don't report them. They will not include them in the change log. However, anybody can look at the source code. So it's not that complicated to create a diff from last week's version of the kernel to this week's version of the kernel, eliminate everything that has a, something in the change log, and look at what's left. Anybody ever did that? Threat actors do, every week. How is this threat actor ecosystem? How does this work? This actually works much better than any bug bounty program out there. Okay? When you try to report something through a bug bounty project, they will haggle on the description of the CVE, they will haggle on the price, they will claim it has a low impact, they will claim it's not rev relative. Bad actors don't care about that. I went $2,000 for this vulnerability, here it is, hand me the code. Done. Whole transaction, 10 minutes. And it's not just bad actors. There are companies doing this. I won't give any publicity for the company because I totally dislike their way of doing business, but um, a couple of months ago they were paying $2.5 million for any O-Day vulnerability that would let them unlock, unlock the latest iPhone. $2.5 million. Cash in hand. Threat actor eco ecosystem. How does this work? There's the people who find the vulnerabilities. These are the ones that look at the code as, these, as it's submitted. There the the are the exploit creators, not necessarily the first class, but a separate group of people that are actually into pro programming and know the ins and outs of it and know how to ab abuse an exploit. The sellers, the resellers, and bundles will just create a nice package that you can then sell. And then this was mentioned in the keynote yesterday where, they, where the, the speaker was talking about uh, infrastructure as a service and software as a service and all of that, and this nice growing graph. Hacking as a service is growing as well. You get this complete package. It includes tech support, where you just handed the turnkey solution. OK, I want to hack someone. Here's the kit. You just add your Bitcoin address. You send it to people through email. We handle all the sending of the email. You just collect the, the Bitcoins. We'll take a cut off the top. And they will give you, <laughs> this is interesting, they will give you a self-support portal that you can host on your website, where people can log into put in the code that they get from the, the ransomware strain that they are infected with, and have information about how long they still have left to pay, how, if they are allowed to extend that period, how they get the encryption key. Really helpful. Works really well, actually. Again, this is much more efficient than what we have currently for bug bounties. You need one of two things to be able to join the forums where this is traded. You need reputation as an existing hacker or somebody who discovered some vulnerability or already sold something, or you just pay to access. You pay a couple fractions of a Bitcoin, they give you access, then you see how it works, you look at some business, you try to buy something, after a while they will give you back the money and you just keep having access to this. 
reputation in one forum will probably open you the door to the next one. There are always, and this is the important thing here, there are always new vulnerabilities ready to be bought there. Some trade actors will actually get money from both ends of the story. They will sell it on dark web forums, and then a few days later they turn around, use their real name, and report a new CV. Hey, I found this new exploit. Great. Let's create a patch and all of that. Please give me the bug bounty money. So this highly incentivizes people to looking at code. Working for free as a volunteer, keeping your own project running, you might not be as incentivized to actually look at all the security issues and look at the code as deeply as you need to if you're just doing it on your spare time. If you're get, getting a large payout, you will probably look at the code more deeply. So is open source less secure than closed source? Not exactly, and the answer is not that simple. It's not that it's less or more secure. It's that when you're looking at closed source code and looking for security issues, you actually have to reverse engineer the code. Reverse engineering the code, I don't know if anybody has ever tried to do it. Um, anyone? Okay, basically consists of taking the code in assembly form, looking at it through a tool like Hydro or something. Um, but you're looking at assembly code. Assembly code is not the easiest language to pick up. There are many more C developers than assembly developers. It's just a matter of numbers. There are more of one than the other. It's easier to find people who know one rather than the other. And the thing here is that um, reverse engineered code loses context, loses variable names, loses comments, for example, and all of that is included in open source. So it's actually much easier to look at open source looking for vulnerabilities than it is to looking at closed source. It's not that they don't exist. We write bad code on both sides of the fence. It doesn't matter if it's open or closed. We really suck at writing code. Just look at the number of CVs. Um, but looking at closed source code in this context is actually more difficult than looking at open source code. So finding vulnerabilities is easier in open source code. I know this is debatable. I know some people will not agree with me. Again, have a plan to catch. Please don't hit me. And open source is like this by design. We want people to join the projects. We want people to be able to familiarize themselves with the code, to be able to start developing and contributing to the code. So we do it in this way because it's the best way to have collaboration. And fortunately, it's also the bad way <laughs> the worst way for the threat actors to exploit. So who is actually looking at this? Who is actually looking at the code? The threat actors. High payouts, they are highly motivated to look at this. They are looking at this. If you have an open source project and you have never received a security complaint about it, it doesn't mean it's secure. It just means you didn't get a report. It didn't, doesn't mean that nobody hasn't looked yet. Don't assume it's secure just because you don't, you don't get information about it. PhD students, these guys are looking at the code. It's amazing to have a resume where you say, oh, look at this CV, it has my name underneath, I found this. So CV stud <laughs> PhD students in cybersecurity related degrees, these guys are looking at the code as well. The thing with this group of people is that they only need to find one, and then they'll stop looking. Security researchers working for free on small open source projects. It happens, very rarely, but it happens. These guys will usually find a couple of projects that they're interested in, tiny projects, doesn't have to be something very massive, and they will actually look at the code, create a security audit around the code, try to break it in weird and fancy ways. And then if they find something, they will report it and they will try to work with the project and get them fixed. And then there are the security researchers paid to work on large open source projects. That includes Kubernetes, for example. The projects that have 
large sponsorships that have companies backing them, those have the resources to invest in security. Unfortunately, that's the very, very, very minority of all the projects. And then there are the intelligence agencies hoarding vulnerabilities. We've known from several leaks happening through the years that this is something that happens. We don't obviously know the details, but we know that they are looking at the code, they are keeping the information for themselves to use in their exploits. So yeah, what are the key takeaways here? The first one is the reason why I actually proposed this topic. This is something that I've seen repeated over and over again in conversations around open source, where people have this inherent trust in open source being more secure simply because it's open. And I completely disagree with that. Again, arguable if you have a different opinion, totally respect it, but being open for the sake of being open does not mean it's secure at all. You need people to actually look, and you need people with the knowledge to actually find the security issues. You need people with the right skill set to look at the language that you're writing your code in and be able to identify security issues that might not be obvious at first glance. Because not all bugs are. It's not always an off by one. It's not always a bounce check that's missing. Sometimes it's something more involved, where you ha actually have to look at how the code operates and see that changing a value in the function here will actually let you create a root shell on the other side of the code. The best line of defense against this is still patching often. And when you're patching often, you need to keep in mind that the, the risk windows that I talked about yesterday on the other talk, where you take four weeks, five weeks, six weeks to deploy a security fix, are not taking into account all the time that goes before the public disclosure, where somebody for sure has found the vulnerability. Whoever finds it first, the disclosure is not on the same day. It goes to a process, so somebody for sure has found the vulnerability before it was reported, and that time never gets included anywhere. So on your patching process, when you're looking at your security posture, taking weeks to patch something is for sure too long. We need to balance the scales of the... We need to tip the scales back. At this point, it's very, very skewed towards the bad actors. Their economic model around this is much, much better than what we have on the other side. We need to tip the scales towards this. Google actually announced, Google and other players in big names in the, in the IT industry, actually announced a, pro a program a few months back where they are subsidizing, paying for security audits around major, pro major projects and all the dependencies on that, those projects. This will trickle down eventually, but again, it won't reach 1% of all the projects out there. So we need to find a better way to actually do this and to look at security posture and open source, because otherwise, the other guys just win, because given enough time, any, any project has a vulnerability. The next one is also very important. If something isn't reported, if something isn't publicly disclosed, no matter how good your vulnerability scanners are, they will never pick it up. They don't have any indicator of compromise, they don't have any signature, they have nothing to look for. So whenever your vulnerability scanner tells you, okay, this system is safe, what it actually means is for all the vulnerabilities that I know at the moment of running this scan, I didn't find any of those. And security auditors will take that report and be very happy about it. It just doesn't mean that it's secure. This one is tricky. 
try to keep logs for as long as possible. If you have the available hard disk space, keep them forever. Never delete a log. Why is this important? If a vulnerability comes along, if it's high profile enough, have your vulnerability scanner look at the past logs. When you find the breach 10 months ago from something that was disclosed today, you're going to have a very interesting meeting with your IT team. And this happens. Okay? This isn't something that's just made up. This happens. If you have log rotation happening on a weekly basis, monthly basis, or something like that, consider taking off the, the rotation and just hold on to the logs. This is the last slide. Um, verified all the, verify all the code that you're bringing in. I know this isn't feasible. Okay? If you're pulling in Kubernetes and it has hundreds of thousands of lines, you don't have the manpower to actually go in and look at all the, the code. That's just not doable. It's how things are. You'll have to trust it by default. But at least for all the projects and tools that you bring in, try to add these concerns to your research, to your report when you're adding a new tool, if you do that. Look up the information around the project. Make sure that they do code aud audits, that they have some security process in place that actually looks at the code every now and then. See if there's a bug bounty pro program for the project. Even if they're really bad compared to the other option, it does mean that more people will look at the code in that project than to the ones that don't have them. Make sure you understand how vulnerabilities are handled. Are they publicly disclosed? Do they create reports about it? Do they just fix it and never tell anybody? Do they take a month to look at a critical vulnerability? Would you want to have a, a tool in your tool set that takes a month to fix when it's vulnerable? Probably not. How transparent they are. This is important. Some projects will not give any information about security issues. It's their choice. This is open source. They make the rules for their own projects, so they choose not to report that. However, that means that it takes longer for the information to reach vulnerability scanners. Okay? If you rely on those, this is important. If you have the resources, if you have the know-how in-house, pick a project, pick a dependency of something that you run, something that doesn't have a code security audit in place, and do one. Contribute that to the upstream project. Just pick one. Okay? You don't have to go through all the thousands of tools and programs that you have. Try to look at something small, and that helps a lot. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Joe, for your talk. Are there questions? So we still have some time. Okay. Hi. Um, what do you think about ethical aspects? So, for example, security researchers try to uh, submit or actually submitted bad patches to the <laughs> Linux kernel. What's your thoughts Say on like this? the University of Minnesota? Yeah. There are rules in academia and how do you do research. There are rules in place in all the universities how you conduct research, so you should always get approval for that. I know you're talking specifically about that case. Um, yeah, they did the obviously wrong thing. They went and submitted, if you guys are not aware, um, a researcher or a research group in the University of Minnesota in the United States submitted some bad commits to the Linux kernel. They actually submitted dozens of them to see how many could get through to the actual code base, and some of them were caught almost making it all the way to the code base. Those commits were malicious. Okay, So what they were trying to prove was that it was possible to exploit the reviewers for the code, and that they would be able to submit bad code and have it included in the kernel. 
that's not how you do research. You need to get approval from your test subjects, at least from the projects where you're submitting. You talk to the leadership first, even if you, the, the actual reviewers are not told about it, but somebody in the project should know beforehand. So they did the obviously wrong thing and they just submitted it blindly. They actually got suspended from the university, I believe. Are there more questions? So I have one, or yeah, I think one. Um, maybe it goes a bit beyond the scope of your talk. You wrote um, keep good logs for a long time. I think we are now starting this like huge topic of, of log aggregation. Um, I mean, but Kubernetes is getting more and more important and logs really grow. Are there good and bad logs? If you had asked me half a year ago, I would tell you, sure, there are bad logs. Right now, keep as much information as possible. You don't know what you will need for the next vulnerability. You don't know if it's going to be something that's so completely obvious that you just scrape away the information and don't need it right now. But try to keep as much of it as possible. If you can keep all the fields, I'm thinking, for example, of a web server. You have, I don't know how many fields that you can add to the logs. So the logs can get very large each line. If you have the resources to actually keep all of those, you don't know what, which ones you'll need. So having them all available is probably the best option. I know that's unfeasible to do because there's no such thing as infinite space. But for as long as possible, for as much as possible, try to. Okay, I think so default retention times are about... Default retention times are nowhere, <laughs> are nowhere near enough for yeah. something like this. And this is really a problem we're encountering very often, I think. What is your opinion on automatic patch installation in that case? Let's say you have a landscape with um, development, production systems. Uh, how would you deal with automatic patches? Is there any best practice in your opinion? Use live patching. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, thanks. Seriously, I'm not kidding. Use live patching. It's the best way to have automatic patching with no disruption, so there is no downside to doing it. And you just get the benefits of having the security issues in place. You said the uh, uh, log files as many and as long as possible. Yes. That's two variables that are excluding each other. Yes. Longer or more? What is your gut feeling? And Probably longer. Okay, thanks. So we have the same gut. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> If there are no other questions, I would just like to add something here. I would like to thank Mark and the ITX team for their organization here of the event. It's been a great event to be part of. We're really grateful for the, the, the possibility of being here with you. It's been really fun, and we hope we see each other in the next one.